0: You're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. It's been a dream of ours to be able to break through the facades of mainstream media and help seed alternative imaginations for more life-enhancing worlds. We're so committed to keeping this show going, but as an independent media project, which does not take corporate advertisers, we do need you and your direct support to be able to continue the podcast. So if you value our work and want to help keep our show alive, join us today as a patron and co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com slash support. You can also support us by purchasing a Green Dreamer planner through our fundraising shop at greendreamer.com slash shop.
1: One of the things I think is most fascinating about it is just why this restorative work needs to be done in the first place. How... How did we ever arrive at such a a silly notion of animal life that we would have bracketed out all of these complex processes of learning and sociality? But we did, or at least dominant conservation practices did.
0: In this episode, we're speaking with Tom Van Doren, a field philosopher and writer. Tom is the deputy director at the Sydney Environment Institute and teaches at the University of Sydney and the University of Oslo. His current research and writing focus on some of the many philosophical, ethical, cultural, and political issues that arise in the context of species extinction and human entanglements with threatened species and places. Tom has explored these themes in depth in three books, Flightways, The Wake of Crows, and A World in a Shell.
1: I was drawn into thinking about extinction, like so many people, by the fact that we're living in the sixth mass extinction on the planet. And I guess growing up, watching David Attenborough documentaries and, and doing all of the other kinds of things that we do, I, I was aware that, that species were disappearing. So that was always part of my consciousness, as it has been for, for all of us for decades, I guess and so i guess that's that's the, the broadest level answer that it's it was just such a big pressing issue that i was aware of and, and i wanted to do something about but the more the more personal academic story i guess is that i i came to it through thinking about agriculture actually thinking about I wrote my PhD thesis on on plants, on agricultural plants, and became really interested in the disappearance of of crop varieties. That so many diverse kinds of pumpkins or squash, as you call them in the US, or maize and and all of these crops that we grow were disappearing. And that we really what we were encountering in in the supermarket was a very impoverished version of what food once looked like. And so from there, I got interested in in seed banking and some of the many ways in which agricultural diversity was being conserved. And so it was sort of in that roundabout way that I then started thinking about the the non-agricultural world and thinking about plants and animals out in the wider world and wondering about extinction and thinking about the conservation efforts going on around those species. So yeah, I I came to it through agricultural plants, but but really for the last 15 years I've been working mostly on, on birds and more recently on snails and thinking about what what their loss means and and how it matters.
0: Mm, And I'm really excited to dive into all of this here. And we could of course dedicate a whole series of conversations just on agro biodiversity loss. But here in your new book, A World in a Shell, which offers a collection of snail stories from Hawaii, you note that as a starting point, Hawaii was once home to more than 750 species of land snails, yet almost two-thirds have gone extinct. This actually is the first time we've taken a microscope to focus on snails in particular, so I would appreciate it if you could just first lay the grounds here by sharing some of the unique roles that snails play within ecosystems in spite of their small size and some of the most fascinating things you would learn about these little creatures of Hawaii while diving into their stories and ways of being.
1: Yeah, well, um, it's, I guess it's not surprising that you haven't had an episode on snails before. Yeah. They do get overlooked in, in most of the conservation world. And, and I myself have been, have been very guilty of that, not just with snails, but with the whole invertebrate world. And that was really one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to, after writing about birds in my last three books, and realizing that I had spent very little time thinking about invertebrates at all, which make up 99% of the animal kingdom, but are largely overlooked. I really wanted to use the snail stories as a way of coming at that broader invertebrate crisis, but also in the invertebrate bias that that really directs our attention away from them towards mammals and birds and some of the other more charismatic species. So yeah, it was a real learning curve for me too on snails, but I discovered that they are really remarkable creatures up to all sorts of fascinating things. Ecologically, it, it really varies around the world what they're up to. Some of the time, they're really important decomposers of leaf matter and other things helping to create soils, and that's certainly the case in Hawaii, where um, until relatively recently, there were no earthworms. And so snails and, and other invertebrates played these really important roles in these volcanic islands, helping to create the soils that, that forests and other things depend on. They're also, uh, I guess, one of the the big roles that snails have around the world ecologically is as a source of food. It's not a very glamorous role, but um, they get eaten by things. And in particular, they get eaten by birds a lot of the time. And their shells, obviously, are made of calcium carbonate. So during breeding season for birds, those uh, snail shells can be a really important source of calcium for birds that need a lot of calcium, obviously, to make their own eggs for their young. So snails, yeah, have the, a range of different ecological roles. And in Hawaii, it's, it's interesting because we, we know that some of the, the species were decompos- or are decomposers of detritivores, of decomposers of leaf matter and things like that. But there are a whole lot of other species in Hawaii that live amongst the leaves and their their diet is not actually eating the leaves themselves, instead they scrape this really thin layer of microorganisms off the surface of the leaves and this is actually quite common for snails around the world. Many snails that we see living on, on leaves, living in plants, are actually not attacking or harming the plants at all but they're sort of cleaning the leaves. And so we we don't really know what the ecological function of that is, how that matters in the forest. Does it help to reduce plant diseases and pathogens by keeping and to create more diverse microorganism communities on plant leaves? What impact might that have on the plant's health and the health of the forest? We really don't know. And we can't really study that anymore because, as you say, so many of the snails are gone in Hawaii and so many of the forests are also fractured and damaged in ways that really make it hard to understand what that ecological role was.
0: Yeah, there's still so much we've yet to learn. And there are certainly so many things that we may never come to know about what we've already lost. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. And one of the core messages of your work, I I think, is that these individual stories of species endangerment and extinction ought to be understood as windows into larger global processes and historical contexts. So with the particular case of two-thirds of Hawaiian land snails going extinct, what do you think is pertinent to highlight in terms of the key drivers of their plight? And how are they, when contextualized, entangled with the Kanaka Maoli or the Native Hawaiians' own realities in terms of their cultures, knowledge, lifeways, and connection to the land?
1: Wow. Thank you. That's a, a big explosive question. My favorite type. And I'll, and I'll do my best to, to try and respond to it. Yeah. It's, a, it's, so the snail story in Hawaii is very complicated. And, and that's why I wrote a book about it. But, um, the, the main drivers of their loss are many and these days it's a a range of introduced species especially actually an introduced snail the rosy wolf snail which is a a cannibal snail that tracks other snails through their slime trails actually and and consumes them in in huge numbers and so these introduced snails that were brought to Hawaii in the middle of the 20th century to try and control another snail that had been brought to Hawaii decades earlier so they are now sort of the, the biggest cause of the decline of snails but there are many others and, and habitat loss, as we've already touched on, is a, is a big one. The Hawaii's forests have been so damaged by all sorts of things, introduced animal ungulates, cows and pigs and deer that, that graze the forest down. But also, of course, just loss of forests for urban development, for the military, especially in Hawaii, for tourism. And, and then there was this really fascinating and disturbing period of shell collecting that was really kicked off by missionaries uh, missionary sons in the in the 1820s when they arrived in Hawaii who were just captivated by some of these beautiful tree snail shells and set about collecting them on mass so there are a whole bunch of historical and contemporary causes of snail decline in in Hawaii and so my aim in in trying to draw out some of that history and some of the contemporary conservation efforts and things was sort of twofold the two main names one of them was i've already mentioned was to to try and draw attention to the invertebrate bias in particular and the, and the fact that 99% of the animal world is made up of invertebrates and most of us can't even name more than a couple of species that of invertebrate species that have been lost but the reality is that for every you know charismatic mammal or bird that we can name that's disappeared probably another 99 have disappeared from the invertebrates, from the you know the insects and the snails and the spiders, and that's just going on largely unseen. So the unknown extinction crisis is what I call it in the book, and and it's an effort to to story one part of that, the the snails situation in Hawaii, as a as a lens, as you say, onto this bigger. Issue, But the other thing I really wanted to do in the book, and this is my first book that's really aimed primarily at a broad popular audience, not not primarily at at other academics. So the the second thing I really wanted to do with the book was to draw out the biocultural complexity of extinction. So that's the, the fact that extinction is not just an ecological process going on over in nature, but it's one that's tangled up with human communities and histories in really complex ways. So I wanted to to also take these snail stories as an opportunity to explore how histories and ongoing realities of colonization and militarization and globalization have really caused and continue to cause the loss of species around the world. So we often talk about the current period as an anthropogenic extinction crisis, as though it's anthropos humans that are, are driving this. But in reality, of course, we know that it's it's very particular human communities, economic and social and cultural systems that are giving rise to this loss of species. So by slowing down with the snail situation in Hawaii, I also wanted to tease out a lot of that and think about about the specific uh, human histories and practices that are driving extinction on the one hand, but also the way in which different human communities are very unevenly impacted on by the loss of species. And and in Hawaii, as you mentioned, of course, Kanaka Maoli, native Hawaiian people, are particularly impacted by the loss of biodiversity.
0: Yeah, so the significance of individual species lost really goes far beyond the loss of that specific form of biological life. And I actually first came across your work while learning about the alala, which is the endemic Hawaiian crow found nowhere else in the world, who used to have one of the largest native bird populations in Hawaii, but now primarily exist only in captive breeding programs. From the alala project, they share that there are now currently 110 crows in captivity with ongoing release programs since 2016. Although maybe with questionable levels of success, which you would be better equipped to speak to since this was one of your focuses of your previous book, Flightways. And specifically, I would love for you to share here about the perspectives of Cindy Sally, if I said her name correctly, who you spoke with, who had fought so hard to keep the last wild crows on her land due to a belief and humility and perhaps a more holistic understanding that indeed a species becoming extinct means much more than just their biological bodies being endangered, and that it could also signify their cultural loss and loss of knowledge and even language loss, which means that there could be grave limitations to their ultimate abilities to live and survive in the same original habitats, when captive breeding programs end up changing their cultures, social skills, knowledge, and upbringing. So what more can you share with us about this story of species endangerment that could remind us that culture is not exclusive to the human domain, and that with the exception of maybe very last resort solutions, we might learn to develop a more holistic approach to protecting and enhancing the diversity of life?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's another yeah, lovely question. The the alala, the Hawaiian crow, first drew me to the Hawaiian Islands too, and I, I've written about them in in flightways, as you mentioned, and also in in my book, The Wake of Crows, which is about crows all over the world. One of which is is the alala, and it's a really complicated story of their conservation and. They're be- beautiful birds. And as you say, ones that have lived in captivity for, for such a long time now with, with some limited success in, in trying to release them. I guess I'd, I'd zoom out from them to, to think about that situation more broadly because that, that kind of ex situ conservation where we, where we try to take animals into captivity and look after them there is just, is so common these days and increasingly common and has a really low success rate around the world it's it's so difficult to get species back out into the world once they've they've come into the last of them have been brought into captivity and that's for a whole range of reasons one of the biggest of which is just that you know the reasons we brought them into captivity in the first place are very often that that their habitat has been destroyed and so getting back the kind of lands that they could go into and live sustainably is often just really really difficult or impossible and that's certainly been part of the story with the alala but the other part of it that you mention is is one that really interests me and that is what is lost from the culture and life way of of animals when they're brought into captivity and that is so different depending on the particular species we're talking about there are ways in which the snails that i've been writing about more recently are, are likely impacted by having been raised in captivity that does in some way we think probably impact on on them and their capacity to to be socially with other snails and to make sense of their world and so on but it's you know drastically different when we're talking about an animal like the hawaiian crow that is so cognitively advanced, if you like, that so they're such intelligent birds with such complex social and emotional lives, and so being in captivity really does impact on their capacity to to learn their calls and their songs, to learn about what kinds of foods they should eat, to navigate the landscape, to learn where the safe places are, to learn you know different fruits that ripen over, over the year. All of these things are learnt on the land; they're learnt through in relationship, and we've had really there were, were decades especially in the the from the 1970s 80s 90s decades of just disastrous captive breeding programs where people basically took animals of all sorts into captivity all over the world tried to keep to breed them up like chickens or you know like any other kind of battery raised animals and then released them and wondered why they all died mm. and that went on you know for, for quite a long time um, there are all sorts of, of examples of that around the world and it, so it's only sort of slowly and it's kind of mysterious why it it took so long that protocols began to be put in place to think about and this has happened with the alala. to think about how do we train them in captivity to avoid predators for example how do we train them in captivity to find the foods throughout the year and those are really imperfect efforts but more and more of that work is being done now and i think it's it's fascinating in a whole range of ways but partly because it it really gets to a very impoverished notion of animal life that was informing conservation projects for a long time, where we just sort of thought of animals as kind of wind-up automatons, a- robots that that could just pop out of an egg or, or be born a- and knowing everything they needed to know. And so, yeah, as you say, a very a richer notion of animal life. Uh, which is different across, you know, between snails and crows, but nonetheless that there, that there are animal cultures and there's now your know, whole fields of biology focused on on animal culture and that there are inheritances that move between generations that need to be taught, that need to be observed and learnt on the land. And so I think that that richer sense of, of animal life is becoming Slowly, part of the way conservation is done, and there's this a relatively new field of conservation called conservation behaviour, that's really about trying to integrate the, the behavioural sciences, behavioural ecology, with conservation biology. But that's a is a you know a slow and difficult work that pushes against a lot of assumptions and dominant practices. And one of the things I think is most fascinating about it is just why this restorative work needs to be done in the first place. How how did we ever arrive at such a a silly notion of animal life that we would have bracketed out all of these complex processes of learning and sociality? But we did, or at least dominant conservation practices did. Mm.
0: Yeah, so the low success rates of captive breeding programs, of course, has been a reflection of the many factors that led to their endangerment in the first place, which are still present when they mostly are still present when they might be reintroduced. And then there's the added factor of their cultural loss for the species after a long period of being in captivity. And like you, I was really fascinated by this. And I want to bring in this quote that you share from Cine Sally. She says, the Alala were kind of like the kings and queens of the forest. They chased the hawks and the hawks had a healthy respect for them. As a matter of fact, it took four or five years of releasing young birds before the hawks realized that these were different than the ones that used to chase them around and that they had fair game. I truly feel that whatever happens in the forest now with these birds, it's a different species. They're going to have to relearn everything, including the calls. So from their language on up, they're going to have to have a huge learning curve. It's going to be a different bird, end quote. So with that, I think this is also an invitation like how we understand there to be different cultures of the human species and how they each have different impacts on their ecosystems based on their knowledge, lifeways, and relationality with other beings in community that there are similar nuances in other species as well. So we have something like the humanities mm. concerned with learning or language to do with human culture. And I really think there ought to be an acknowledgement then of I don't know, call it like floranity or faunanity concerned with the learning and languages of the cultures of other beings, instead of a disproportionate focus, at least on their isolated biology or otherwise contextualized ecology. And ultimately, I think this leaves me with the question, and I think you've been sitting with this as well, of what could it mean to practice wildlife conservation and protection, knowing that it's not just biological conservation that we need, but Biocultural conservation. And crucially, with that culture also centered on the species themselves and not just on the related human realm, as that word biocultural typically speaks to. I don't know if anything else comes up for you here, but...
1: No, definitely heaps, um, and I, th- I think you're totally right. The the tendency to interpret biocultural as if the humans bring the culture and the and uh, the rest of the world is the biology is is very dangerous, and and yet that is the way that term is normally interpreted. So yeah, we need to to think about human biology in, in non-reductive, non you know not the ways that the bio. The biosociology taught us to think about it, or sociobiology. But we also need to think about animal cultures and, and and even the cultures of plants in different kinds of ways. And so, t- I'm totally in agreement with you there. I think it's it's really complicated with the question about whether or not we sh- we can impact on animal cultures in the effort to conserve them. I think that's a that's a question I'm really grappling with in some of my current work. And and we see it all over the place in efforts to, for example, teach birds a new migratory route so they're not flying over a water zone or not flying over other areas that might be dangerous for them, or to teach them to nest in a different way that might be be safer for them. So you know, sometimes I think we we can and should do these things. They're, they're very interventionist. And I think we need to be really mindful of that and respectful and not try to overstep. And yet at the same time, it's sometimes the only thing that can be done really to hold on to some of these species. And 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 that's only because we failed or humanity has failed or whoever has failed in all of the other things we could have done earlier on before this became a crisis. But, but I do resist the the sense that, you know, because the, for example, the Alala have changed their culture in some way, or they've lost some of their songs, that they're not the same species. I think something has been lost, but the point that has been made by many anthropologists and others and, and indigenous activists about culture. About there about human cultures should be applied to animals too, and that as as it was once famously put, that that cultures don't hold still for their portraits. James Clifford I think said that um, cultures don't hold still for their portraits. I think this is true also of animal cultures that that what it is to be an alala is an evolving project and it's one that was formed in the landscape with particular trees and and particular ecologies but it's one that will change and one that probably needs to change in order to endure in the world sadly and so i think we need a a notion of animal culture that's not static that that allows for change and that allows for what we might sometimes want to call human forms of interference in animal culture without assuming that you know it's its historical form is its pure correct form and that any kind of change is therefore a degradation of some sort but without also on the other hand just celebrating any kind of random change and saying you know any change goes and and However, we want to impact on these species. We can teach the Alala to go and become dumpster divers like <laughs> other crows and that's fine. Yeah. I don't think that's appropriate. So so it's it's walking that balanced line that says that change is okay, but what kind of change and for whom and with what consequences. And that becomes really difficult when you're when you're making those calls.
0: Right. And especially as people become more aware of species endangerment and loss, there have been all sorts of solutions proposed and implemented to sustain particular species, like captive breeding programs or otherwise efforts to fight whatever it is that is endangering their collective well-being. And that's particularly the case when we're talking about certain introduced species not having maybe pre-existing predators in their new habitats and proliferating so well that they might be taking over or outcompeting their more indigenous counterparts, compromising the abilities for other beings to live and sustain themselves in the ways that they had always known to. Or otherwise, of course, maybe the introduced species bringing in new diseases that more rooted and indigenous species may not have adapted to have the immunity to manage. So that would be another concern as well. But here I want to shine a light on this pattern that I've seen exist across the work of species conservation or the attempted work sometimes. And you touched on this a little earlier, but when new species is introduced intentionally as biological control agents for other previously introduced species that have become problematic in various ways, but then they're being unforeseen impacts from that intentional introduction and even unhealthy ripple effects into the ecosystem, which either aggravates existing issues or creates a whole nother set of problems that need to be dealt with in the lens of enhancing biological diversity. So whether it's the introduction of various snails to Hawaii and the new introduction of other snails to address those or some other species that you've looked at, what stands out to you most on this topic that you feel called to share in this moment?
1: Yeah, there are so many uh, examples of, of the kind of thing you're talking about where we, 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 whoever this we is, uh, <laughs> conservationists try to correct one mistake by introducing another species. And yeah, I mean, the example from the Hawaiian snails that I mentioned a moment ago is a classic one. And one that I think is really instructive in some ways in that the the rosy wolf snail, Eugolandina rosea, was introduced not only to the Hawaiian islands, but introduced all through the, the Pacific islands, all through the Indian Ocean islands. All over the world, and, and really very little work was done in Hawaii, or, or really most of those other places, to ask what impact would it have on on the native species, and that's really problematic. Um, really, it's people have been studying these Hawaiian snails for for a long time. Kanaka Maoli had uh, and have really intricate cultural knowledges and stories and, and chants and songs about snails. It's not like it was a, a surprise that the islands were incredibly rich in snail diversity, and yet when there was a problematic Afri- it was called the giant African snail still there that you know that people wanted to get rid of bringing in a carnivorous snail just seemed like the right thing to do so you know at least to the group of people who got to make that decision so they they really just didn't care I think is the is the takeaway from this story and they didn't care again and again all over the world and sadly that continues. Um, It doesn't continue on quite the same scale, thankfully, in most parts of the world. There's a much healthier skepticism about what's often called biocontrol initiatives. But I think the underlying psychology is really interesting that, that these questions just weren't asked most of the time who else will be impacted on by this and and that's really i think about a, a sort of resourceification of the world that there was an agricultural pest this is a solution to an agricultural pest if if you're another snail in the forest who's not sort of pulling their weight economically then you're sort of not factored into the equation at all and that's the the, the particular really damaging mindset that that animates a lot of our most destructive behaviors in a a whole range of different ways. And and biocontrol initiatives and the introduction of species in those ways is just one manifestation of that really damaging mindset, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely have recognized this as a pattern that when certain quote-unquote solutions are implemented to take care of one very specific issue, they're being unforeseen consequences in other ways. And maybe in this scenario that later introduced snail did help to lower the population of the species that that they wanted to control. But then of course, it also caused a lot of destruction to all of the other diverse native snails as well. So it created a whole host of other issues. So this Mm -hmm. kind of speaks to the dangers of Reducing problems and looking at them in in very isolated ways, and I mean this would be a tangent, but like right now I have concerns with climate change being reduced into a problem of you know CO2 levels because there are a lot of ways to lower CO2 levels that creates a whole host of other issues, and so yeah. people could be called quote unquote successful if they implemented some solution that lowered CO2 levels. But then I think we need to take a step back to look at the bigger picture of like, what other impacts does this solution ultimately have beyond that one measurement that we're we're looking at? Mm. And then, of course, beyond all of these ways to protect what still remains, I know you've also explored the ethics and question of how far do we go to bring back lost species? Like a lot of what we just discussed, I know your thought process is one that really looks at the nuances and the bigger context rather than the one dimensional question of how far we go. So I wonder if you can take us through some of the considerations you've made on this subject and perhaps your non-conclusive questions that you still have and encourage people to sit with.
1: Yeah, great. Well, I guess maybe the first part of your question, I'm in complete agreement. I think this how we frame the problem really matters for the kinds of solutions that we that we get at the eco-feminist philosopher val plumwood is a great teacher of mine called this this tendency for what she called minimum rethink where we you know we really tend to frame the problem really narrowly and then come up with some really impoverished solutions to it And, and there are so many examples of that and your climate change example is a great one i think we see that Writ large in the, the eco-modernist manifesto. I don't know if people have read that, but if you can, you can Google it. But it's this kind of drive to solve problems through the further intensification of things like you know, nuclear power and desalination and more intensive agriculture. That somehow that is the solution to the to climate change and other environmental crises in a way that doesn't ask about not only all of the the carbon emissions and the other externalities associated with those kinds of intensified technologies, but also all of the the animal welfare issues associated with intensive agriculture or all of those other social justice, environmental uh, animal welfare issues that get compounded often by those intensifying, industrialising solutions to big environmental problems. So that effort to sort of, yeah, to turn those into externalities in our problem thinking, not just in our economic accounting, is really dangerous and, and very common. So I agree with you and, and we do need to be sort of relentlessly asking about how a problem is being framed and how that framing is narrowing the scope of the kinds of solutions that we can see or imagine. Yeah, and, and maybe the second part of your question is an example of that. I mean, that the question of how far we should go to bring back lost species i mean that that is a kind of solution that emerges and is becoming increasingly popular to talk about this kind of de-extinction projects resurrecting extinct species is itself i think deeply problematic that 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 is where some people think we ought to be going in the current crisis so there's a whole range of different ways in which people are proposing to to de-extinct species some of them get called cloning things like somatic cell nuclear transfer there's other genetic technologies and breeding technologies that are being proposed here that might do this work i think it's a a really dangerous line to be heading down for a whole range of different reasons and people have have made all sorts of arguments about the potential to undermine the the rhetorical power if you like of Extinction—if it's not forever anymore—that that might undermine conservation efforts. I think that's something to to think about. I think one of the the really big issues that isn't talked about at all in the literature is where these de-extincted species would go, and and very often the, the same things that, that led them to to go extinct, especially when we're talking about more recent extinctions, are still out there. You know, and and. Quite often, human persecution is part of it. And the idea that in Australia, we talk about the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, as a species that should be resurrected. But, you know, they were basically killed out of existence by by farmers. Where would they go if they were brought back? How would that not just happen again? And I think when we start to ask those questions, we see that often what is animating these projects is an imagined future of these species living in a zoo, some people even talked about them being pets and we we very quickly begin to see that what's going on here is often not about ecological restoration at all it's about sort of technological hubris it's about people wanting to do cool stuff with genetics which i'm not opposed to cool stuff with genetics but i am opposed to when it comes with a whole lot of of false promises, a whole lot of captive breeding and animal suffering. And when it's being presented as a solution to a problem that it's actually not trying to intervene in, an ecological problem, I think that's often just dishonest. So, yeah, it's a a complicated bundle of, of questions, I think.
0: Right. I think it is important, though, to sit with this question of whether all of this work is about the restoration of the health of the planet or something else, because Everything we talked about earlier, the conditions that led to their endangerment or extinction in this case, all of their cultural and knowledge loss... And then the problems with introduced species to an ecosystem leading to unforeseen consequences in ever-transforming landscapes that are very different today compared to when those species were still here and in their exact forms, depending on how far back they went extinct. So I think there is a lot of this consideration. And to me, it does suggest that a lot of this curiosity and work isn't really about healing the planet. And could be about something else. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And oftentimes the stories that get told of different issues get portrayed as this versus that, the good versus the bad. And yet you've noted the importance of really complicating the narrative in this case of conservationists and those struggling and resisting the loss of particular species and habitats versus those enacting and bringing forth that loss and destruction. So what are some of the complexities here that muddy the binary that we should keep in mind? And what do they reveal about how connected the processes of ecosystem destruction are to historical and ongoing dynamics of dispossession?
1: yeah yeah well I, I think there is a there's a tendency to tell our stories in in that way yes that, that the and I think we see that in a lot of of popular writing about uh, extinction and the environment this sort of Two key roles, I think, that go on in a lot of that writing. You've got the kind of the salvational figures who are often scientists or conservationists, but sometimes indigenous people or activists who are, are you know, struggling to to save species. And then you've often got this kind of amorphous humanity that is the threat—that's the you know the poachers or you know, the people who are causing um, climate change and so on. And and we really yeah we t- we tend to we. Tend to tell stories in that kind of a simplistic way. What I have tried to do often in my writing, and 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 I think that sort of comes naturally if you go out and actually talk to people on the ground and take a a, real interest in a particular case study, a particular site, is to tease out the complexity that you know there are no simple heroes and villains there's all sorts of complicity and compromise involved in in what drives species to extinction and in all of the efforts to to conserve them so trying to flesh a lot of that out that complexity i think is just it's just a more nuanced account of what's going on but it is also an account as you say that that takes into consideration these bigger processes that we're all embedded in, historically and today that, that shape and constrain our possibilities, our possibilities for action certainly, but also for imagination and, and response. So trying to draw that out too, I think really matters in the, in the way we tell these stories. And one of the, the really central things I've tried to do is to, to think about how extinction impacts unevenly on, on different human communities. So I guess I started thinking about that when I was in India thinking about the vultures the decline of the vultures there and talking to members of the Parsi community the Zoroastrians who who have traditionally exposed their dead to vultures inside these towers of silence um dungavadi that you know that they could no longer do this that the, that that whole funerary system with all of its really significant religious meanings and and was breaking down because the vultures had had all but disappeared, and also there were worries that a common pharmaceutical, one that I even I was taking at the time, an anti-inflammatory, diclofenac, that when the vultures consume that, it kills them. So, so it wasn't. It also wasn't safe for them to eat the bodies of of Parsi people. So that sort of you know that that you could. Tell that these decline story of the decline of the vultures in a whole lot of different ways, but but from a pasty perspective, it was very different, and it, it impacted you know profoundly on people's sense of whether they could take care of their dead relatives in in culturally appropriate ways. And we see that again and again around the world. And, and of course, in the my more recent snail work, as I mentioned a moment ago, a lot of that effort has been to think about what the decline of snails means for Kanaka who have these beautiful stories about how the snails sing in the forest at night mm. and beautiful cultural significances and, and, and stories that these snails hold in the world in a really significant way. And so to ask what, you know, how the disappearance of snails impacts differently on people who live in that world who who inhabit a world where snails sing in the forest at night and that's different and so the the effort to to draw out those differences and to make them questions of justice in a way that attends to unequal impacts is i think has to be key to how we think about biodiversity loss as it is as it is with all of our environmental challenges
0: absolutely and I mean, your work has looked at species extinction and endangerment in various parts of the globe, though the key examples we focused on in this conversation, both the snails and the alala, have been in Hawaii. So I would love to wrap up this thread by exploring some of the acts of resistance and solidarity. As you note, in at least a few places in Hawaii and the broader Pacific, indigenous peoples and snails are engaged in vital practices of solidarity with each other and with scientists. Lawyers and other concerned people to protect their lands against the destructions wrought by the military and others. End quote. So, what are some of these collaborative and multi species processes of resistance and creating alternate possibilities that have really inspired you?
1: Yeah, there, there are so many. Um, but the, the one that I t- really spend time with in, in the snail book is the work of the group Malama Makua, who uh, have been working on on the Waianae coast of Oahu to resist the, the US Army's destruction of the of Makua Valley, which is a sacred valley that has. I mean, all all valleys are sacred, I guess, in important ways, but Makua means parents and and this is an important side of creation in some ways. But this is a valley that since the Second World War has been being used by the army and, and routinely blown up and used for live fire training and, and weapons dumping and, and detonation so you know it's been really destroyed and and that's in you know impacted of course on the snails and other species that once lived in the valley but also on cultural sites so i got really interested in that work talking to folks from malama makua and visiting the valley which was itself just a real Privilege and a kind of strange Experience in that it's still An army facility and yet As a result of lawsuits and Struggles by Malama Makua They now have cultural access to the valley And in, in a similar way to The way that you know, cultural access To uh, Kaho'olawe in uh, Which was also being destroyed by the US military, the navy in that case That that cultural access When people started to visit and people started to, to See the place and connect with it really, Really changed the struggle in really vital ways. And that's something that, that Uncle Vince Dodge from um, Malamamakua really emphasized in my discussions with him. And so. A sort of similar logic, I guess, was at work here in these cultural visits that are that are still going on. Access cultural access visits to this valley, which are are really strange, because you've got to be led by army personnel around the valley Mm. so that you don't go off the path and you don't potentially tread on unexploded ordnance that. That could still be lying in the environment, and the, in, yet in the midst of all this, there's this group of people, uh, you know, trying to connect and reconnect with this valley and have this cultural visit. It's a, a really strange situation, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I I got obviously very interested in that, but also interested in the in particular in the work that the snails had done in that, and how this kind of solidarity with snails and with the the power of the Endangered Species Act to to you know, halt the US military in interesting ways, how that the Malamamaku have been able to operationalize some of those laws where indigenous people weren't protected by law but endangered species were in more significant ways and how they and their lawyers, Earth Justice really worked with that system and worked with, the the information we have about snails and their uh, histories and presence in the valley to achieve what is really a great outcome in many ways, although one that's still quite uncertain in that valley. Mm.
0: Well, the last thing is a lot of your work has this sort of interplay between applying a more microscopic lens to one particular species and their plight of extinction or endangerment, and then a zoomed out landscape view to connect those often siloed issues with broader global and historical context. And this has been an underlying theme throughout this discussion. But as we come to a close here, what message ultimately do you think this zooming in and out with scale and time scales tells us? And what are some of your remaining calls to action or deeper inquiry for our listeners?
1: Yeah, I think that zooming out is really important. It's important all the time, zooming in and out, as you say. But, but perhaps particularly important when we think about extinction because I don't think we can really appreciate what species are unless we, we do that work of deep time thinking, of understanding a species as a, an intergenerational process that is stretched over evolutionary time, that has been holding itself in the world in, in myriad different ways and not in a static Uh, form but evolving and shifting in as different challenges arise adapting that species are these remarkable often you know hundreds of thousands or millions of year-long projects in the world and i think when when we take that lens on them it opens up new avenues of appreciation that are not there if we just think about them as kind of a, a collection of of individuals who happen to be on the planet with us right now i think we we can be drawn into a deeper sense of our Obligations as well to look after the kind of ecological community that we happen to be lucky enough to be sharing this this moment of Earth's history with, and and those are not you know incidental relationships. The species that we happen to share the planet with are the ones who who nourish and provide for us, who have shaped our cultures and our languages and our ways of thinking, and this community that we that we have grown up in as a species and as individuals, of course, and cultures. And this community is has made us. And we have, I think, this profound obligation to to try to hold on to as much of it as, as we can. So that's one of the, the big things that I think that kind of zoomed out deep time thinking has done for me and my work. And at the same time, of course, when we zoom back into the present day, we see how quickly and violently those evolutionary lineages can be snuffed out in the matter of just a few human generations we can you know in the case of the snails we can take these multi-million year evolutionary achievements and we can in a hundred years just destroy them so i think again i'm using the word we in deeply problematic ways here some some humans much more than others some some processes of, of destruction more than others so that's one of the things i've really tried to do with the, the zooming in and out uh, in a temporal way but, but there, there are so many different insights that come from from shifting our perspective and i guess this links back to your earlier point about how we frame the question and the way that limits our imaginative possibilities again how we frame things temporally and spatially constrains or or opens up new possibilities. So being, I guess, a bit promiscuous, maybe in our in our temporal and spatial uh, orientations, and and you know, in, and in our and humble at the same time about which ways of knowing, which which um, cultural lenses, which uh, languages we think through, as Donna Haraway has put it, drawing on Marilyn Strathern, the the stories we use to tell other stories with. By attending to those, I think we we open up new possibilities for for seeing issues and and struggles are new.
0: What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow?
1: Well, just recently, I finished reading um, A Field Guide to the Patchy Anthropocene by Anit Singh and Jen Diga and their colleagues. And I think that's a, a totally brilliant book. It's sadly not out, I think, until next year, but definitely one to keep an, an eye out for. And in the meantime, I think their shared project, The Feral Atlas, which is online, is a, is a great place to go looking for those kinds of really complex, nuanced, multi-layered, multi-temporal stories about our world.
0: What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded?
1: Well, I meditate, and I and for the last year or so, I've been trail running, and I've been finding that to be, yeah, very grounding in, in a whole lot of ways I wasn't expecting, so... For those who can, who have access to trails and are able to to run, I th- um, which hasn't always been my case, but it is at the moment, that I'm finding that really you know, grounding.
0: Mm. And what is your uh, or one of your greatest inspirations at the moment?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's it's always my my collaborators and my students who are a a seemingly bottomless source of of creativity and passion and, and insight. And I think working with people which is not always the way that you know that artists and writers and humanities scholars and others work i think we're often taught to be these kinds of solo individuals who are struggling on their own to create great insight i think that's a a real shame and uh, as i get on in my career i work more and more collaboratively and it's both stressful and frustrating in some ways but when you find the right people it is just uh, a remarkable gift and so that's where so much of my inspiration comes from at the moment
0: Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here. But to learn more and stay updated on Tom's work, you can head to www.tomvandoren.org. And Tom, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really, really fascinating conversation. And I'm really looking forward to continue leaning into and sitting with everything that we discussed here. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Well, wow. I, I think the thing that um, has really inspired and guided me is to, to as much as possible in life, to, to seek out the people and places and jobs where you can that really inspire your creativity and passion. I, I'm firmly of the view that long-term, sustainable, inclusive change can only come from Directing those kinds of relationships and energies at the problem from people sort of mobilizing the things that they're passionate about and that inspire their creativity. So rather than seeing that as a guilty pleasure, um, whatever it is that inspires your creativity and passion, I think, you know, in the midst of so much crisis, we can sometimes do that to find ways to channel it towards change. I think, I think that's where, where, you know, really life affirming long term change is going to come from. So. I hope I'm right, um, and mm-hmm. uh, but for now, I think it's a it's a way of of continuing to contribute to so many of the big issues while still having a life worth living. And I think, especially for younger people who are growing up in a climate in the midst of climate anxiety and a climate crisis, I think it's so important to hold on to, you know, to simultaneously be working to have a life that you find joyful and rewarding uh, and one that contributes to change in a positive way. So finding ways to, to bring those things together is, I think, a challenge and yet yeah, really vital for people.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of the show with a donation of any amount, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Caliopea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Hummingbird by Leah Thomas. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.